John chapter 10, we're going to be looking beginning in verse 30 and move through the rest of the chapter to verse 42. We spent a couple of weeks uh, treasuring together John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. If you want to look at that, why don't we say those verses together again? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, this coming week, I would like for us to treasure together verse 30. And uh, this is a simple verse, but yet a very profound verse, a very theologically deep and meaningful verse. Jesus says these words. Let's say this together. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are, are one. That goes right to the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This goes right to the heart of why we tag on the end of Jesus' name, Christ. That wasn't Joseph and Mary's last name. That's a title, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, and we say our Lord, attributing to God as as we've been singing, right? We believe that our God is Jesus. And if you're making that cooler in here, I would very much appreciate it. (laughs) Hopefully you're not making it warmer. We say Jesus Christ, our Lord, as we've been singing So we are attributing to, we are believing in, we are trusting in that Christ is divine in the exact same way that we would say God the Father is divine, that He is God. That's what that verse means. I and the Father are one. So it's a very important verse for us in our faith and what we believe and wherein lies our salvation. So if you are able, I would love for you in honor of the reading of God's word to stand. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And if you do not have a Bible, we have some available for you in the Resource Center just to the right of the lobby. Please uh, pick up a copy today as our gift to you. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And that's why we don't have to wonder what did Jesus mean in verse 30. His his contemporaries knew exactly what he was saying, and they tell us by their opposition to it. 
Jesus answered them then, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, which is the second very theologically rich statement in our text, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Thank you. Defending Jesus' claim of deity. Defending Jesus' claim of deity. We're all familiar with uh, court proceedings, our justice system, jury trials. I'm sure we would all agree that we are thrilled when we receive our jury summons in the mail. We're excited. We can't wait to tear that letter open and get to it. You know, our, our, our system, is as imperfect at sometimes as it may be, is, is an orderly processed attempt to arrive at, at, at fair and just decisions. Components like being innocent until proven guilty, being tried before a jury of your own Peers, things like that are, are in place to at least help us to, to put some things in place in these proceedings that to help ensure some amount of justice and, and maintaining of the law to be, a, to be a people of the law. Now, I bring that up because what we see in our text today is something of a trial. Although it's, it's not a legal trial by any means, it's not fair, it's not a, a proceeding to arrive at, at justice or truth by any measure. It's an attempt to find, to find Jesus guilty of blasphemy and deserving of death in the court of public opinion. A, 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 a kind of a mockery type trial proceeding that would justify the hatred with which these leaders have for Christ and their determination to prove that the things that he says are are untrue, that he is not who he claims to be. That the gathering, the following, the people who are believing him are being misled. If you kind of see what's going on in our passage, uh, you can tell that it's, it's not a, a quest for understanding or a, a quest for truth or a seeking to, 
to hear and, and determine and weigh all the evidence and arrive at a, at a truthful conclusion. If you look with me there in verse 31 where it says that the Jews picked up stones again to to stone him. Um, It's actually better translated there, carried stones. Instead of picked up, carried. There's a sense that they, they, in this circumstance, brought the stones with them. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened to Jesus. and In fact, this is almost an exact replication of something that we've already seen happen. In fact, back in John chapter 8, we're looking, looking there at, in, in verses uh, 58 and 59 where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And his contemporaries understood by him saying, I am. He was using the divine Name, So he was claiming at that point that he was God. He was the I am. And the Bible says that they picked up stones to stone him and that he kind of slipped away. And kind of the exact same thing, almost the exact same scenario repeats itself in this text, except for what we see happening on this occasion at the temple is that the Jews come and they have their stones with them already. They encircle him. They begin to bait him and ask him questions. They're trying to get him to say something. And in fact... Jesus says exactly what they're wanting him to say. He claims to be God. And they have their stones and they're ready to throw them. This is instead of innocent until proven guilty, this is a case of guilty with no chance of proving oneself innocent. But Jesus, however, in no way cowers away from their devious plot or their manipulating trickery or their scheme to kill him right here. It's not accomplished. Their, their, Their plot is foiled. They fail once again for the second time to do what they are so determined to do. And what we see is that Jesus rather makes a defense. He defends what he has claimed. And what I, the way I've kind of put it together in sermon form is to say that Jesus brings forth three witnesses. There are three witnesses here that we see in this text that, that verify to those in John chapter 10 and for us today that Jesus is actually more than innocent of blasphemy. He is indeed God, is the point of these witnesses. So let's look at the first witness together. We'll see this in verses verse 30 through 36. The witness of the Word. The witness of the Word of God. The witness of Scripture. We've we've already mentioned that this, this has happened in John 8. This happens again in John 10. These things that Jesus, these things that Jesus is saying are 
are clearly communicating that, that Jesus is declaring himself to be divine, to be God. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the Father. The Father, they clearly are reference to God. I and the Father are one. The reason why it's so offensive, the reason why in John 8 the Jews picked up stones to stone him, the reason why in John 10 they grabbed their stones to stone him, is because they, they are theologically aware of what he is saying. They know exactly what he is saying. And this is, by the way, why it's so important, kind of a side note for us, it's so important for us as believers to continually be students of biblical theology, to continue to study and understand as Paul prays for believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to continue to understand who God is, who He has revealed Himself to us to be, the, the language, the meaning, the doctrine, the theology of God and Christ, the Trinity, salvation, man, sin, salvation. To continue to be students of these things and nurture our, our understanding of these things. To be students of Scripture. So that these words of Scripture do not pass us by with little to no meaning. But that we, we feel the force and understand the weight and receive the impact of these Things that are being said when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That, that carries such a depth of theological meaning that his, his opposers, his opponents, wanted to kill him. May we be growing in, in our knowledge of God to, as we study the Scripture, to more and more understand the, the depth and the truth, the eternal the eternal truth. Now, this is clearly in verse 30, a, a, a kind of Trinitarian statement from Jesus. I am a person, the Father is a person, and yet we are one. I am an individual person, the Father is an individual person, and yet we are one. They're not the same person, and yet they are one in nature, one in essence, one in will, one in purpose, one in being. Just as the Father is God, so the Son is God. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And yet both persons eternally exist within the same one Godhead. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. And yet these two persons of the Godhead eternally exist within the one Godhead. Now a full Trinitarian view would also include the Spirit of God. 
The Spirit, as the third person of the Trinity, is, is equal with God the Father and equal with God the Son in essence and nature and being and purpose and will. It's a third person. And yet we don't worship three gods. But there are three distinct persons who exist, eternally exist, within the one Godhead, the one God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune God. And Jesus is unpacking that. He doesn't mention the Spirit because the Spirit's not on trial here. He's being questioned. And He says, I and the Father are one. Jesus, being fully man, complete Completely man, born in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. Fully aware that he is also fully God. That he is always, he is the eternal son of God who came in the flesh. The God man, God incarnate, God with flesh on. And that's why Jesus would later tell Philip in the, in the same gospel. In John's gospel, chapter 14, Jesus would tell Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There is no difference in essence, in nature, in purpose, in being, in will between the Son and the Father because they are God. This is exactly what the Jews wanted him to say. They wanted him to make a claim to deity, a claim of being divine. Because for them, that's, that's how they think they have Him. Now, the only problem with that scheme and that plot is if the person you're plotting against actually happens to be God. And that's only happened one time. But it did happen, and it was to happen. It had been prophesied. We, the... the People of God were expecting, longing, looking for the promised anointed one to come. They knew exactly what Jesus meant here in verse 30. And rather than believing in him unto eternal life, they wanted to kill him for it. As we go through this verse, Jesus is calling for these witnesses, essentially saying, you have every reason to believe that what I say is true. In fact, in verse 32, then, when they pick up stones to stone, to stone him, Jesus immediately points to his works to verify his words. If he is truly a blasphemer, blasphemer and not God, then he would have no means to prove his deity. If their charge is indeed true, then he would be powerless to prove to them that he was God. But because their charge is false, he's pointing to the evidence, his works, to, to testify to his words. And so he says in verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? He knows why they have stones in their hands. He knows it's because of what he said. He knows what they're after. But he's saying here, just stop for a minute and think about the things that you know I have done. You 
The miracles of Christ were undeniable evidence to his claim to be God. Jesus says, examine my work. Sick people are healed. People with fever, deadly fever, immediately recover. Hungry people are fed by the thousands from my hand. Those who are paralyzed are now walking around. You see them. Blind people are now seeing only God can do these things. My works testify to my words. And yet in verse 33, we see their hardened, determined resistance to acknowledge the deity of Christ by, by totally dis, dismissing the works. As if to say, don't, don't get us off track, Jesus. Let's don't talk about your, your works now. We're just talking about what you said. We don't want to get into works. Don't, don't bring in the guy from John 9. We don't want him in here. And so the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. But the work is precisely the point. And that's why Christ is going to really state and argue later in this very passage. If you don't believe me, believe the works. They're telling you who I am. But they're hardened resistance. They're trying to separate the words of Christ from the work of Christ, the, the, the person, the individual of Christ, from the works of Christ. And that's a failed ambition because you can never separate Christ into these distinct categories of person. We study him in his person and we study him in his works, but he doesn't come that way. He isn't that way. It is Christ, his person, his works. His declarations, His miracles. He who entered history and He who was above history. He who was born of the Virgin Mary and He who created Mary. He comes as the God-man. Now that's the way we receive Him. And so in verses 34 through 36, Jesus calls forth in His his first witness, the witness of the word, the witness of Scripture. And in this line of thought or line of defense here, Jesus is using a lesser to greater argument. He's pointing to something lesser to defend his greater claim. And so he quotes Psalm 82, 6, when he says there in, in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? And sometimes the word Law is used to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes the word law is used to refer to the entire Old Testament. That's the way Christ is using it here. He's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. Asaph, the psalmist, says that those who are rulers, those who are Princes, those who are have been set in authority over other men, are called gods. 
They have been established in their place of leadership. They have been placed in this position in which they are overseeing. They are ruling. They are making decisions for men. They have a certain degree of authority over others. They are judges, rulers, princes that they've been put in place by God. And in the sense that they have authority over a collective group of men, they are called gods. Little g. And so Jesus reasons, if the Bible... If the Bible, if God, in the inspiration of Scripture, if in your own law the Bible calls mere men, that we all agree are mere men, no one is saying worship them, but if in the Bible men are called gods, then why is it blasphemy for the Son of God who has been sent into the world by the Father, why is it blasphemy for, for, for Him to declare Himself the Son of God? Because it's not such that this is an unverifiable, unfounded claim. It's not as if this is just a statement that's being made with no grounding, with nothing to base this statement on. This is not some kind of unfounded claim of a false prophet or an insane, ridiculous claim of a madman or a deceitful, manipulating claim of a liar. The works of Jesus clearly are clearly the works of God, the works of the Father. And so Jesus hasn't hasn't made one claim that he has not sufficiently proven to those who are hearing and seeing and listening and watching. And so the witness of Scripture is that if men of authority are called God, should not the Son sent by the Father be called God? What are you, what are you talking about blasphemy? And by the way here, as, as Christ is reasoning this, this way with them, and so, in other words, the point is, wait a minute, is your beef that somebody's saying they're God? The Son of God has a right to say that, because it's true. Well, even in the Scripture, mere men are called gods. He's, he's kind of tapping at what we always see as really an ingrained... Legalism. A side note here is that that we see when Jesus is making this, he he also makes another theologically rich statement. He points to the witness of the word and in saying that, in other words, you might not be comfortable with calling men gods, but scripture calls them gods. And scripture cannot be broken. And when he says scripture cannot be broken, he, he affirms Christ Jesus affirms the eternal and inspired inspiration nature of the scripture. 
One of the reasons we believe in plenary inspiration, meaning that the very words of Scripture, not just the, the main themes and the main outline and the, and the, the main storyline, but the very words of Scripture as recorded in the original language of Hebrew and Greek are, in fact, inspired by God and therefore are without error and are absolute truths. One of the reasons why we hold to the plenary inspiration of Scripture is because Christ said Scripture cannot be broken. Not one jot or tittle, not one aspect of even a word that's given by God will pass away. They are eternal, they are inspired, they are of God, they are spoken of God through men, carried by the Spirit to ensure it's the words of God. Scripture cannot be broken. So that builds our confidence in, our our rest in, our affirmation of the things that we learn in Scripture, such as things such as when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. What undergirds the the doctrine that we rest in and we trust in and we embrace for eternal life. What undergirds those truths is the truth that Scripture cannot be broken. Because it is of God. Of God given by God. So there's the witness of Scripture. The second witness that Christ calls forth in is the is the witness of his works again. So he takes them right back to his works. Is his second witness. He's going back to this because this is the point that they're trying to dismiss. This is the point that they're trying to overlook, that they're that they're trying to set aside and focus on the words and try to scrutinize that that Christ has said in verse 30 apart from isolated from the things that Christ has done. That prove that these words are true. And so he goes back to scripture and he says, well, wait a minute. Don't make too big of a deal of what I just said because scripture uses that language. Now, let's let's go back now. Since we've dealt with what I said, let's go back now and look at my works that prove what I've said. This is how Jesus is defending before his accusers that what he says is accurate. He is God. So he brings forth his second witness, essentially saying, if I'm if I'm just all talk, then don't believe in me. But I'm not. I'm not just talk. If Jesus came speaking and preaching and making these shocking and astounding claims that he makes, which are startling. They are absolutely startling. I can forgive your sin. I, we just read last week, I give eternal life. I lay down my life and by laying down my life, I save the sheep. I and the Father are one. I am. These are startling, shocking, astounding claims. Massive claims. And if they were just claims by themselves, we in our humanity 
would not have have any ground to root those claims in. This is what separates Christ from every other person throughout history and even in our day who claim to be God. Why is it that if someone were to show up tomorrow saying, oh, I'm the Messiah, we would totally dismiss it? Because it's simply a claim. But Jesus did not come just preaching and speaking and making claims of being God. In fact, in Matthew, on two occasions, it says Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven and working signs and wonders and teaching in the synagogue. It's not one or the other, it's both. He not only came preaching and speaking and teaching the claims of God, He came doing the works of God. Doing the works of God. Everything He did displayed the glory of God. That's what we see in John 1, right? He he tabernacled and we have seen, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because everything He did displayed the glory of God. Everything He did was in accordance with the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah. The prophets promised through God. God through the prophets promised He would be born of a virgin. He was. He would be born in Bethlehem. He was. And on and on and on. Everything about Christ said that He is God. You recall over in Matthew 11, John the Baptist is lonely and discouraged. He's sitting in prison. He knows that the end of his life is coming soon. And in his loneliness and in his, his discouragement, coming to the end of his life, he just wants to make sure he got it right. That he put his faith in the right place, in the right person. So he sends his disciples to Jesus. They come to Jesus over in Matthew 11. And it says, uh, John sent us here. He, he, he wants us to know if you are truly who you say you are. Listen to what Jesus tells them over in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 4. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know what he said? Go tell John what I'm doing. Go tell him what I'm doing and the witness of my works will testify to who I am. 
a witness of my works will testify to who I am. Just as Jesus sent word to John, he tells these Jews in, in chapter 10, in verse 38, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. If you will believe my works, then he says, but, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. If you will believe my works, that is, if you will just simply acknowledge what is taking place is a work of God. Man can't do this. If I was a blasphemer, if I was a false prophet, if I was just a man, I, I could not be doing these things. I'm doing these things because I'm God. So if you'll just believe that these works are the works of God, you will be well on your way to seeing who I am. To seeing who I am. Who I truly am. But tragically and sadly, sinfully, we see in verse 39 that these Jews were so determined, so hardened, so resistant, so blind, so dead in sin as we all have been, that they reject Christ as Messiah no matter what, what evidence He could produce. Yet isn't this something? Isn't this something in the gospel? Narratives over and over. It says then in verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Isn't that something? Remember, they have encircled him. They, their stones are in hand, ready to throw at him. They're launching these questions and charges against him. They're trying to, in their mind, see him slip up. They want to accuse him. And he claims to be God. He defends his case to be God. And they reject him as God. And they go in for the kill. And he's gone. <laughs> I mean, it, if you were a bystander, this could have been a, quite a comical scene. You know, it's, it's football season. I hate to mention that, but we won't say anything about the Panthers. Or... It's football season, and it's interesting in a football game when the ball's fumbled and all the players on both teams are struggling and diving and wrestling and grabbing for the ball, and you end up sometimes with just a big pile of people. And the referees are blowing the whistles and pug pulling and tugging and getting people and you get down and now imagine if all that happened and you got down to the end of the pile and there was no football <laughs> now it's probably not exactly what happened here but it's something of the case that over and over the guy, the opponents who are out to kill Jesus surround him trap him plot against him scheme against him go in for the kill and the scripture says he just slips away he just steps away. You know, I always think, why didn't someone stop and ask, 
You know, guys, with all of our determination and our hatred and our plotting and our trapping and our scheming, every time we go after this guy, he just gets away. Why is that? You know, the answer is simple, though, isn't it? Sin dreadfully blinds us to what is so apparent and evident right around us. Sin is insane. And yet, the witness of the Word, the witness of Scripture, and the witness of the works of Christ still stand in eternal testimony to who Christ is. There's a third witness in this text, in verses 40 through 42. Now, Jesus doesn't call forth this witness, kind of the scene with him and his accusers have finished. This is another time, another occasion, another setting with Jesus. He doesn't call forth this witness as his witness, but this witness just naturally arises from the life of Christ. It just occurs. This is the way, this is God's plan, God's way, God's working. It just just happens through the work of God around the life of Christ. This witness is a witness to the Word of God. This witness is a witness to the works of Christ. And this witness is the witness of His people. The witness of the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, the lovers of Christ, the believers in Christ. The followers in this text, that witness is John. We've, we've already mentioned him. And, and here we find his testimony, his witness, lingering and working. John is gone, but his witness is lingering and working. God is continually using his life and his word, his witness to Christ as a means of salvation is a means of witnessing and testifying to Christ. You know, John, that, that was basically his ministry, bear witness to Christ. That's basically our ministry as followers of Jesus Christ. Bear witness to Christ. Speak of Christ. Point to Christ. Acknowledge Christ. Testify to Christ, to those around you. And so what happens here in, in these verses, he says he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. There he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Again, going, hearkening back to the witness of the word and the witness of the works. John did no sign. It wasn't him. There was someone to come. He was preparing a way for someone else. And he pointed us to this man. And everything that John said about this man is true. The witness of Scripture was in place that the Messiah is coming. God is going to send His Son. God is going to send the Anointed One. Hear Him. Follow Him. Listen to Him. Salvation is in Him. The works of Christ testify that He is indeed the Messiah. And John, a witness 
The third witness in this text comes and he points to Christ and he says, there he is. That's the one we've been waiting on. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who you need. Because that's your biggest need. He takes away the sin of the world. I must decrease. He must increase. It's Him. Follow Him. I'm not even worthy to to untie His sandals. Follow Him. Those three witnesses come together in this passage and many believed. You know, it's, it's so interesting and it's so mystifying, but it's exactly how God works. Exactly how God has ordained it, that sometimes all it takes for us to believe is for someone to tell us. Is for someone to share Christ, to point us to Christ, to verify Christ, to witness to Christ. To share about the witness of the word, the witness of the works, the witness of the transformation, to point us to Christ. That's probably the main application of today's sermon. Let's not let this holiday season rush by us without looking for, praying for, being open for those opportunities to point people to Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful for some of the New Year Thanksgiving to be those who we've befriended, those who are part of our families, those who we know, to say, you know what? I prayed about it. I read about it. I wrestled with it. I struggled with it for a long time. But what you told me about Jesus was true. It was true. And so I believe. A simple conversation may have an eternal impact. Let's bear witness to Christ. The witness of the Word of God is right before us. The witness of the works of Christ are right before us. Let's join that witness with our sharing of the gospel. That just in this passage, you see that? And many believed in Him there. Right on the spot. Would you join me in in, in praying that, that many would believe in Christ right here? Because the witness of the word, the witness of his works, the witness of his people. Now, in the end, those who are accusing Jesus, they remain determined to reject him. But in the jury of his peers. In the light of the witnesses surrounding Christ, many believed. That's really our conclusion then. The same three witnesses testify to us today. The scripture that cannot be broken declares that Jesus is God. The works that Jesus accomplished testify, declare that Jesus is God. And just as John did of old, 
the declaration today is that everything we see in Scripture about Jesus is true. Would you believe? Will you believe in Him unto eternal life? Let's pray. Father, it is so clear before us. Your word is so clear. The works of Christ are so clear. The testimony of your people through the ages, through the scripture, throughout history, are so very clear. Jesus is Lord. Father, may we make much of Christ in a Thanksgiving season and a Christmas season. We are praying, Father, that the witness of the Word and the witness of the works of Christ. You you can't get by Christmas without being confronted with the incarnation of Christ. Praying that the witness of the Word, the witness of the works, and the witness of your people. We might see many believe. We ask it in your name. For your glory, we pray. Amen.